This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, today we're going to talk about a famous piece of architecture. Uh, and some pieces of architecture seem to have nothing but bad luck. And today's topic could probably be filed under luck, comma, bad. Uh, but it didn't start out that way. Its its beginnings were quite lovely and pretty glorious and, um, you know, filled with success. Yeah, the run of bad luck was definitely a, a later part of its history. Yes, when the building moved, which is one of those things that doesn't happen very often. But in this yes. case, uh, it did. And it was a gloriously beautiful structure, which was called the Crystal Palace. And that's a name that's been attributed to many, many buildings, but this is kind of the Crystal Palace. All capital letters. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so first we'll talk a little bit about the architect behind it, who did not actually start out as an architect. No, and this this led to some concerns. <laughs> yeah, so it was Sir Joseph Paxton. Uh, he was a 19th century English botanist, and then later an architect. Uh, he designed... Um, Met more towers and a famous hot house, which was called the Great Stove at Chatsworth. Uh, and he also designed gardens. And there is a, um, a piece called Bourgeois and Aristocratic Cultural Encounters in Garden Art of 1550 to 1850. And in that piece, Margaret Flanders Darby says that Paxton, quote, is celebrated as the very definition of 19th century upward mobility. Because he started out humble. Right. He and was, ended up pretty celebrated. Yeah, he was born on August 3rd, 1801 in Bedfordshire to a farm family. And when he was young, he worked for the Duke of Devonshire as a gardener at Chiswick Gardens. In 1826, he had cultivated this friendship with the Duke and really impressed him with his horticultural wiles. So at that point, he was assigned to the post of superintendent of gardens at the Duke's estate in Derbyshire, known as Chatsworth. Some of the elements of the garden designs that he created there uh, in what's called the classic mixed style still exist. 
And there at Chatsworth, Paxton designed and built a greenhouse for the Duke. That's the one we referenced earlier, called the, which is sometimes um, casually called the Great Stove, because it was a hothouse. Uh, and he also created these really impressive fountains. He built a model village there. Uh, he was very busy creating a lot of structures for the garden and the grounds. And one of his greatest accomplishments was that he was able to keep this exotic lily cutting that he got from Guyana, not just alive, but thriving. Uh, the leaves were allegedly 12 feet wide. So if you can wrap your brain around that, there is a, a picture of his daughter sitting on one of them. That was just this amazing accomplishment, considering that this was England, which is not really where you think about these giant sort of exotic lilies growing. Uh, and he had built this specialized house with a heated pool, which was quite new uh, to the idea of gardening. And he was obviously an extremely clever man. And he had this innate ability to solve problems in really creative ways. But he also had an eye for the visual element, because often these creative problem-solving situations were also just visually stunning. In 1849, Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, who was also the president of the Royal Society of Arts, launched this plan to host an exhibition to showcase Great Britain's industrial achievements. He managed to get funding for the project really quickly. Most of that funding came from Queen Victoria. And he planned a site for the expo at Hyde Park. So designers were asked to submit their ideas for a structure for the show, to the Industrial Exhibition Executive Committee. So it was a little bit of a design contest. Uh, and there were numerous challenges for architects to deal with if they wanted to submit to this project. First, this structure had to be constructed quickly. Second, there were concerns about the destruction of elm trees in the park. So the hope was that the design would accommodate those elm trees in some way. Third, the building had to be temporary. It would have to be removed from Hyde Park by a date of June 1st, 1852. And of course, it also had to be big enough to accommodate all of the exhibitors that the committee wanted to attract, as well as all the foot traffic that they wanted to come and see the visitors. So that's kind of a tall order. It needed to be a giant temporary convention center, basically. (laughs) Which even... With modern tech would be kind of tricky. I know. It happens. Right. But then when you think back to the early 1850s, it's really quite something to think about. Right. Joseph Paxton submitted his idea for a glass and iron structure on June 20th, 1850. The commission wanted him to address the concern over destroying the elm trees in the park, and they requested that he revise his design to include this vaulted crosswise piece in the building, which is called a transept. And that would enclose the elm trees and prevent the need for them to be destroyed. He did this and his design was accepted in part because his construction plan involved pieces that could be brought together in segments and installed in a modular production process. All the other submitted designs involved this like large scale masonry. So they really were not practical for the very short time frame they had to build the thing or the idea that they wanted to take it down later. Yeah, it's almost like they got this idea of they wanted to showcase their country's cultural history. So a lot of them kind of went in the castle zone. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, you're missing kind of part of the brief. We need to, we need this to be quick up and down. Right. Well, and I think if I had been in the meeting where they came up with this whole idea in the first place of like, let's build a really big building, but only for a very short amount of time and then we will take it down. I would have just been like, are you serious? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Is this the best use of your time and resources? 
Well, but, uh, you know, Paxton figured it out. Uh, and because the most available glass dimension at the time was apparently 10 inches by 49 inches, uh, and the structure was going to need a lot of glass, that standard size was actually used as the basis for a lot of the entire design. There's actually a really, really cool site uh, that we'll link to in the show notes that breaks down how that geometry works, and they've actually built out CG models of the various elements of the structure, so you can kind of look at them in 3D and see how it all came together and how those glass pieces were used in those dimensions to create what became the Crystal Palace. And as a side note, I feel like I should say the name the Crystal Palace was not officially given by Paxton. It kind of came up in the press as this was being discussed during the submission and acceptance process and the the pre-build lead up to it that uh, journalists started calling it a Palace of Crystal and it kind of took the name accidentally, but then it got adopted officially. I wonder if that annoyed people. Who were really into glass. I don't know. Possibly. <laughs> Maybe. One really interesting challenge that comes with building a huge building made entirely of glass is the fact that glass just can't handle a huge water load uh, in that configuration. So rain can be really dangerous. So they put in special gutters, which, of course, were named Paxton gutters. And those are designed to quickly carry water away through this big gutter system and really just keep fluid from accumulating on the roof and crushing the thing. Yeah, it was very, very efficient. It was almost like a tributary approach in reverse, right? where they would start very small and just lead into the progressively bigger gutter system. Well, and if you think about, like our office is pretty much a giant building walled in glass. Yeah. Those are... There's the vertical surfaces, yes. like the horizontal surfaces in our building are are not glass. Yeah, because it's too it's really really hard to maintain at that scale, uh, especially it's safe. And we'll get to the scale in a little bit when we talk about construction, which will make you realize how mammoth the structure really was. I I was I was unaware. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during construction, there was concern, as you hinted at earlier, that Paxton's lack of real architectural experience was really going to be a problem. People were like, well, yes, it's beautiful, but this guy doesn't know how to make buildings. He makes greenhouses. Uh, and his area of expertise was hothouses. So it, they were not a, the kind of things that would be seeing the kind of foot traffic that the expo was expected to have. And there was some very real fear. Yeah, meeting Tracy again would be saying, are you sure? sure? (laughs) So due to all these concerns that the expo was going to be housed in a structure that was designed by a gardener, even though his experience had really moved way past just gardening at that point, it was decided that all iron girders had to be tested before they could be installed. And they also added cross bracings that were made of wood, primarily as sort of a visual reassurance for visitors. Yeah. It just looked sturdier. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of fun. And the building was actually put together in less than eight months by 2,000 men that are sometimes referred to in some um, historical documents on it as unskilled laborers. Like basically these skilled workers had put together the modular pieces, but then they were shipped to the site. And it was almost like I don't want to demean it by saying, like, click together, but you really didn't have to have, like, a degree in engineering to see how they went together and to assemble them. It was a barn raising. It was pretty smartly designed in that regard. A barn raising for glass. Yes. And the finished dimensions of this structure are, uh, it was... 1,848 feet long, which is about 563 meters. 
It was 408 feet wide, or 124 meters, and 108 feet high, which is about 33 meters. And including the galleries and the ground floor, more than eight miles, or 13 kilometers, of display tables were housed. Eight miles of display tables. This is where my mind really boggled. Well, it's one of those things where um trying to kind of filter it through, like, my modern experience. I'm like, this is kind of like if Dragon Con or Comic Con was in an entirely glass building. Let's never do that. <laughs> no, for other reasons. But when you think about it at that scale of, like, a huge convention center that's made entirely of glass. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't help but be a little, one, impressed at just the uh, sheer brazenness of it, and two, pretty wowed by the engineering, again, by someone who people were kind of poo-pooing as a mere gardener. So, yeah. Well, and to be fair, while the structure was definitely unique and eye-catching, there was one major flaw in its design. And you could attribute that flaw directly to Paxton's previous experience being a hothouse designer rather than an architect. Because the palace was designed like a giant hothouse, it basically worked like a giant hothouse. So when you went inside, it was basically an oven. 
they put in this rather elegantly designed louver system that allowed for some ventilation and moved cool air from the base of the, of the building up into the main halls. But as you may guess, if you have ever been into a greenhouse in your life, it's not really enough. No. And I mean, they had taken other precautions. They had the louver system had been built in to the design from almost the beginning. And they had even placed the boiler house, which produced steam that powered all the exhibits, uh, in another building separate from the exhibit hall. Again, they, he had thought about the heat. It just wasn't enough to uh, mitigate the problem because the sun shining through the glass still turned the whole place into an oven. Well, and then when you fill it up with people. Exactly. I mean, even a, a fully modernized air-conditioned building when filled up with people is really The temperature cool. goes up very quickly. And so to remedy these temperature issues, they put these large canvas tarps that were draped in between the roof ridges uh, up to offer some shade. And the fabric drapings actually ended up being uh, a benefit in a couple other ways. They cut down on glare and they created a more even, softer lighting for the interior of the building. Uh and they had to, of course, as we mentioned, glass not great at load bearing. Uh, there were so there were small openings designed into the seams of the drapings that let water pass through and go directly to the Paxton gutters. Uh, so the tarps wouldn't get too heavy for the glass; they wouldn't compromise the structure. And again, it was a pretty elegant solution to the whole problem. One other ingenious aspect of the structure's design. Uh, was small gaps in between the wood planks and the floor. So every evening after the the crowd left, they could just sweep the accumulated dirt from the day into the gaps for quick cleanup. Yeah, because remember, it was a temporary building. So while it had um, uh, like a column sort of base to it, um, like a foundation, it didn't have like a full slab foundation. So they really could just kind of return the dirt back to the earth. And they it was very, very smart. Uh and it went up on on schedule and opened on time. The exhibition opened to the public on May 1st of 1851. Nearly 14,000 exhibitors were at the show. And they featured such items as steam engines, prosthetic legs, chewing tobacco, false teeth, guns, hydraulic presses, and rubber goods made by Goodyear. Exhibitors from France, the United States, Turkey, Russia, and Egypt attended... And even the Koinor diamond was on display. The expo ran until October 11th of 1851, and there was a big closing ceremony on October 15th. And everyone agreed that the show had been a huge success, and it actually did turn a nice profit. And more than six million visitors had attended during the time that the expo was open. Uh, as a consequence of all of this success, Joseph Paxton was knighted in that same year for his work on the project. Because the Crystal Palace had been such a success, it inspired other exhibitions to house their shows and glass conservatories. This included the Cork Exhibition of 1852, the New York City Exposition of 1853, and the Paris Exhibition of 1855, as well as others. So having a big glass exhibit hall was a thing now. Yeah, because it was so cool and unique and uh, really beautiful. <laughs> it was cool and unique until everyone was doing it. <laughs> until it became hot and popular. Right? <laughs> uh, but once the expo was over, Paxton really yearned to preserve the exhibit hall, as did the public. I think there was a sense of, do they really have to take it down now? Uh, and while it did have to be moved from its spot in Hyde Park, uh, the good news was that because of its prefab design... It could be reassembled elsewhere. 
there were a whole lot of battles along the way, but Paxson managed to set up the Crystal Palace Company under a royal charter. And with the help of a bunch of other wealthy gentlemen who were willing to fund the moving project and serve as its directors, uh, in August 1852, the reconstruction started on the Crystal Palace in its new home. This was Sydenham Hill, which was in southeast London. And the rebuilt palace opened in June of 1854. There were uh, some structural changes to it. It didn't go together exactly the way it had been for the expo, but it was pretty close. Uh, they kind of switched some things around, I think, to match the new footprint. It wasn't that they got to the end and said, where does this piece <laughs> I have, go? I have a piece left over. Uh, no. And in its new incarnation, the Crystal Palace became uh, what many people call the world's first theme park. It had more than two million visitors each year, uh, and they enjoyed educational exhibits. There were like museum style setups. There was a roller coaster there. There was live entertainment. There were cricket matches. Uh, and they even put in a prehistoric dinosaur swamp, which I kind of love. Uh, and it's worth keeping in mind that the existence of dinosaurs, while there had been some fossil record for a long time before that, they really had only kind of put together the concept of what dinosaurs were a few decades before this. So they were kind of working from very early ideas of dinosaurs. The Crystal Palace Park was even popular with royalty, which is not so surprising. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert visited on a regular basis, and kings, queens, shahs, sultans, and all kinds of other rulers from all over the world visited as well. And as a uh, random and very Holly-specific interest aside, in 1871, the Crystal Palace was actually home to the world's first cat show. Uh, and it actually hosted many other subsequent shows of cats and other animals. So it's just a very popular place. Uh you know, huge kind of cultural center and theme park. Right. That actually was after the Crystal Palace started its long and unfortunate run of terrible luck. Yeah, it had been such a great success as an exhibition hall, and everyone really lauded its beauty and its beautiful design. But once it moved, it seemed like its luck kind of ran out. It started to have... One piece of bad fortune after another. And whether you want to attribute that to actual change in luck or just this will happen when a thing is around a long time, it will accumulate bad events. It really had some really rough ones. Yeah, it starts in 1861 when high winds damaged the structure. And then uh, a few years after that, five years after that, on December 30th of 1866, a fire destroyed the north end of the building and a number of the natural history displays, including the Alhambra, Assyrian, Byzantine Court, Indian and Naval Galleries, as well as the Tropical Department. And they had sort of a small zoo happening at the time, and several of the animals housed in that park zoo were also killed. Uh, but due to funding issues, only a portion of the destroyed building could be rebuilt. In 1892, a hot air balloon accident at the park caused one fatality. And in 1890, an escaped elephant trampled a park visitor. That's both tragic and crazy to me that there was an escaped elephant in a giant glass structure. Well, I think it wasn't in the glass structure. It was in the bigger park. The park was really quite large. The structure was the centerpiece, but there were lots of other things going on. Like the dinosaur swamp was outside the the building. Okay. But the whole thing was considered the Crystal Palace 
as a park. Oh, I see. And then in 1911, the park actually declared bankruptcy. Even though it had been wildly popular uh, and continued to be and had many visitors, the cost of upkeep, especially when they were having to do things like repair glass that was injured or that was damaged in winds, you know, rebuild sections that had been lost in fire, they just could not keep up with the expenses of rebuilding and maintaining. And prior to the bankruptcy and sort of a last-ditch effort uh, to drum up some cash, the palace had hosted what they called the Festival of Empire, which coincided with George V's coronation. And the pageants and the displays did give the finances of the park a slight lift, but it really was not enough to undo decades' worth of fiscal strain. So on September 11th of 1911, an announcement appeared in the Times stating that the Crystal Palace would be sold at auction on November 28th of that year. And in the weeks after the announcement, a flurry of uproar and crazy fiscal juggling started happening because people really did love it and they wanted to save it somehow. On the 9th of November, the Times ran the headline, Crystal Palace Saved. So Lord Plymouth, who was Lord Lieutenant of Glamorgan and Mayor of Cardiff, had arranged to purchase the palace for £210,000 to try to keep the beloved park off of the auction block. The Lord Mayor of London then set up a fund to purchase the property from Lord Plymouth. And in 1913, the Crystal Palace became a national property. Yeah, uh, Lord Plymouth sort of stepped in. He didn't actually want to become the owner of the park, but he wanted to save it. And uh, it was one of those, like, look, I will do the quick thing we have to do to to save the situation and buy us some time. And that gave uh, the Lord Mayor of London time to be like, let's now start to build up some money so we can take this financial strain off of you and give it to the people of the country. Uh, in 1914, a charitable trust was established under the Ministry of Education to keep the park and the historical building going. And the trustees hired Henry James Buckland as manager of the Crystal Palace. Buckland was so completely devoted to the park and the palace and his job that he even named one of his daughters Crystal in its honor. That's kind of lovely. It is. During World War I, the Crystal Palace was closed to the public, so it could be used as a training area for the Royal Naval Division. The property was designated as the Royal Naval Shore Station HMS Victory 6, but soon became known as HMS Crystal Palace. And once that had wrapped up and it got it reopened to the public, for the next couple of decades, Buckland really worked tirelessly to restore the neglected park and work on continual improvements uh, because, you know, it had been falling into some disrepair prior to the auction. And so he was kind of making up for some lost time of care. But under his management, it even started to turn a small profit again. So just when things seemed to be going better... They actually had seemed to be going better for a little while at this point. On the night of November 30th, 1936, the Crystal Palace was almost entirely destroyed by a fire. According to a BBC article written on the history of the Crystal Palace, there were 88 fire engines, 438 fire officers, and 749 police officers called to the scene to try to fight the fire, but it wasn't enough. Only the towers survived, and the cause of the blaze was never identified. Yeah, there was a lot of speculation. Some people claimed it had to have been arson, but there are other instances where people were like, hey, it's a giant 
building full of delicate displays that have lots of glue and paper in them. This could have just naturally happened, and it was so easy to spread, as some, um, sometimes, unfortunately, happens in museums. Mm-hmm. Displays are often not always made to be really fire retardant. Um, and by 1937, most of the ironwork of the once regal and now demolished Crystal Palace had actually been removed by scrap merchants. Uh, because at that point, to rebuild the whole building, they just did not have the finances for it. During World War II, the park, which still existed, even though the Crystal Palace had been destroyed, yeah. was closed to the public again and used as a post for governmental war work. For a while, the North Tower was used to test dummy bombs. Yeah, they would just drop them off the tower and test them, which is kind of fun. Like dropping eggs at the sea of break. Kind of. Uh, the South Tower was dismantled over the course of the winter of 1940 to 1941. And then on April 16th of 1941, the North Tower was destroyed with explosives. According to some accounts, the towers were continue- considered too conspicuous, and war strategists feared that they would be too easy for German bombers to spot. So here's a quote from Buckland about uh, the state of the park following all of this. The general devastation which we have suffered would lead one to suppose that our acres had been chosen as the field for the most realistic battle of the war. All our equipment, stands, seating, and furniture have either been destroyed or removed by the military. Not an inch of mahogany has been left in the contents of the buildings. Not a single shelf has been left in any cupboard. Yeah, Buckland was really not very delighted with how the military returned his beloved park. I mean, again, remember that this man loved his work and his job. So I think he kind of felt like it had been misused and abused a little bit. Uh, and it should be noted that uh, Buckland actually stayed on as manager there until he resigned in 1949. In 1945, a competition was announced for architects and town planners to submit layouts for a new Crystal Palace and surroundings. And while a winner was announced in May of 1946, in June of that same year, a letter to the Joint Committee on the part of the assessors indicated that while a prize had been awarded, the winning entry was not practical and they should have another competition. Uh, We didn't really find any evidence that that second competition ever really took place. No, it seems like there was... uh, uh, I'm not sure how much of it can be chalked up to, like, poor planning versus... They just didn't get the level of uh, expertise in the entries that they had hoped for. But it was sort of like, a uh, we just had to pick the one that we thought was generally prettiest, but we can't make any of these, uh, which is a pity. And then it, it never really happened. Um, however... The Crystal Palace Park still remains. Uh, now it's home to a concert bowl. There's a sports center there. There's pretty much all of the other accoutrements you would expect in a park, like play areas. Uh, and the dinosaur court remains, though, and it was actually refurbished <laughs> a while back, which I kind of love. Yeah. Uh, and even though the dinosaurs are not really, we recognize now, as accurate. You know, like I said, they were originally put together and designed when we didn't know as much about dinosaurs as we do now. So some of them would be a little silly if you look at them with um, a picky eye. Do they have cavemen next to them? Uh, I've seen pictures and I didn't see any cavemen, but there are like some downed animals and stuff, like okay. some snacks. Uh, I would have a problem with cavemen. 
No. Uh, and in the years since Sir Henry Buckland resigned, there's been a steady ebb and flow of projects in the park, uh, as there would be in any public space where, you know, people will make a bid to build a thing and sometimes it even gets uh, announced in the papers, but then it never happens or small structures are built. One building was turned into a museum for the Crystal Palace, uh, but uh, it, you know, continues. However, there is a, a sort of new development. Yeah. In July of 2013, which is basically just before we're recording this. Yeah, just a few weeks ago. It was announced that a Chinese developer was working on plans to rebuild Paxton's Crystal Palace. Although the mayor's office and Bromley Council representatives were pretty clear that the project was still in the very, very early and theoretical stages. Yeah, there have been other discussions that it was going to get rebuilt before that didn't pan out. So we'll see what happens. It would be really neat if that could happen, but... uh... We don't know. We'll see. We'll wait and see. Uh, as for Sir Joseph Paxton, the architect of the original Crystal Palace, he continued to design gardens and build structures and hothouses. And he actually became a member of Parliament in 1854, and he held that post until his death in 1865. So he really did, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, kind of. He's a, a great story of, like, rags to riches upward mobility. Yeah. Rags is a bit extreme. I don't think it was quite that in, with his farm family, but he really did kind of just through his own smarts and ingenuity rise to prominence. What beautiful, gigantic glass buildings. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, we'll have lots of links in show notes, and many of them will have pictures of the Crystal Palace. It, it's so amazing what a huge structure it was. Just the yeah. sheer size of it is really pretty... Um, Overwhelming. I had imagined it as much smaller until looking at all of these pictures and the people (laughs) look so teeny. Yeah, when you actually see some of the sketches and stuff of uh, the elm trees that were encased in it and the people walking around in there and people up on the balconies on the upper levels, you it's almost startling. Yeah, that can't be. Oh, that is to scale. All right. It makes total sense that they would put in wooden supports that were much more to make it look sturdier. Yeah. <laughs> because I probably would have been scared to go in there. Yeah, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, no incidents related to the safety of the structure ever happened during the expo. And that was some heavy foot traffic. Yeah. So it's go Paxton. You knew what you were doing, even though everyone doubted you. Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour, and our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you also have listener mail? You know I do. Uh, this one comes to us from our listener, Jennifer. She says, hi, history podcasters. I'm new to your podcast, which I started listening to on my hour-long commute to work as a foster care worker in North Carolina. Uh, before I became a social worker, I lived in Afghanistan as a humanitarian aid worker. 
I'm a little awed by Jennifer. I will yes. just say that right out of the gate. Uh, I lived in Kabul, Mazar Sharif, Fazabad, and a village in northern Afghanistan for a period of two years. I lived with local families and enmeshed in the local culture as opposed to other workers who stay mostly in camps or, quote, behind the wire. During my time there, one of the things I found most difficult about fitting in was how to dress appropriately. I know most people associate the uh, chadari or burqa with Afghanistan, but behind, behind closed doors, women actually have a very specific fashion culture. One of the, quote, rules of society for women is that skirts cannot be worn without pants. These pants range from a large amount of fabric that folds and gathers and cinches at the waist to leggings with lace at the bottom. Either way, it's important that your pants be seen peeking out of the bottom of your dress or skirt so that everyone can see you are being proper and wearing pants under your skirt. I couldn't help but think about how similar this is to bloomers or pantalettes that you described in the underwear podcast. Also, the men of Afghanistan continue to wear pants like you described with a lot of fabric, allowing for movement uh, that then cinches at the waist. I'll never forget my husband holding up his new pants from the tailor and seeing that at least four of him could have fit into the fabric and saying, how fat do they think we are? That's what I was thinking when you described the rumors about Queen Victoria's weight based on the size of her bloomers. Anyway, I thought you might be interested in the similarities and in my glimpse of fashion behind the burqa. Uh, if you would like pictures of our outfits, let me know. Of course I want to see pictures. Yeah. Because that's cool. And while I was reading this email when we got it, I, it uh, made me selfishly think of the fact that I don't think I ever wear a skirt without leggings underneath. So I'm halfway there. Yeah. I don't do bloomers, but... I so rarely wear skirts. So <laughs> I wear them a lot, but I, uh, you know, I take mass transit. Sometimes I walk around the city a lot. There's, you never know when wind is going to do anything. So it's a better safe than sorry scenario. Yeah. <laughs> but it is cool. And I think it's one of those things that is always an interesting touchstone to see people, uh, shift into very, very different cultures than what they grew up with. And the clothing is often like a big, wait, what? Once you get out of the Western jeans and t-shirt thing, it all feels very different. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to write to us, please do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also visit us on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook.com slash History Class Stuff. Uh, you can also visit us on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and you can see us on Pinterest. If you would like to read a little bit about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words Crystal Palace in the search bar. And one of the articles that will come up is the 10 best vacations you'll never get to take. And it's an article about really cool places that don't exist anymore, uh, of which the original Crystal Palace is included. While the park remains and there could be a new one if uh, these Chinese developers come through. You will never get to see Paxton's original building, unfortunately. Nope. Uh, if you would like to learn about that or almost anything else you can think of, you should do so at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting? 
or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.